Let's go directly into meditation. So please find a comfortable position. I will read just two passages from Padmasambhava. I'll read the first passage at the beginning, about 12 minutes through. Read the second. Besides that, it will be silence. <coughs> Mazambhava cites another tantra. He states that, and the passage from the tantra of the lamp of primordial consciousness states, O Lord of mysteries, listen. The fully perfected Buddha dwells in the core of your own heart. The Dharmakaya of clear, unceasing awareness dwells within the conduct of spontaneous primordial consciousness. Lord of mysteries, the Dharmakaya in the core of your heart is not grounded in signs, so it is present as emptiness. It dwells as unceasing clear awareness. It is unobstructedly present without obscuration. As it is spontaneous, it is unceasingly present as an impartial basis of appearances. Lord of mysteries, the empty presence of the Dharmakaya, which is ungrounded in signs, is the immaculate nature of your own conscious awareness. It is ungrounded in the nature of any substance or color. So it is this immaculate, empty presence. 
Padmasambhava continues, citing from the same tantra. Lord of mysteries, the Dharmakaya, which dwells in the court of your, core of your heart as unceasing clear awareness. Is this awareness of yours? Whose nature is unceasing, distinct, and clear. O oh, Lord of mysteries, your own awareness, without birth and death, is clear in the equality of the three times. The body of the Buddha has no front or back, so primordial consciousness is unobstructedly clear. The natural luster of primordial consciousness has no outside or inside, so objects and consciousness are non-dually clear. The primordial consciousness of knowing has no partiality. So to the eyes of primordial consciousness, the meaning of all phenomena is uniquely clear. Continue practicing in silence.
uh, Patrice, I'd like, I'd, I'd like to invite John to participate. Could you just call him? I very, John, I very, very much hope you're coming back because I'd really like you to share something with the whole group that you shared with me. So will you come back in a couple of minutes? Yeah, I assume so, yeah. But I was really, I had you very much in mind. And I thought, oh, no, he's going. <laughs> so please, uh, do what you need to do. No, no, absolutely. But I'd like to invite you to speak when you come back, okay? I'll give a preface. This is the eighth of these eight-week retreats I've led. Uh, and thanks to this wonderful young man, uh, Daniel, Daniel uh, we had podcasts from the very beginning. And I can't tell you how happy it made me. you know, Because I'm spending eight weeks with just 36 people. Um, and then to see that with the same amount of effort, uh, in that first year, he tracked it. And it was something like 700 countries and 40, no, no, 700 cities and 40 countries by the, by the active, activity of one person. You know, this one young, he's like 19 year old. He set the whole thing up. It was his idea. I can't tell you how happy that made me. It really, I, I cannot tell you how happy it made me. Because I'm very happy to help 40 people. But if with the same amount of effort, I can help, I don't know how many it was, but I think it might be a fair number 40 countries, some, and about 700 cities, as I recall. Um, then that was enormously good. That really gave me inspiration, like, whoa, then I'll do this again. So over three years, we had two a year. And so I was spending five months away from home here, let alone another four months away all over the world, and only three months at home with my wife, Santa Barbara Institute, my community, my family. But the time here felt so meaningful because I could help not only the people who are explicitly here, um, but so many others. That gave me a, it gave me and gives me right now just really a sense of meaning. And, and really my whole life, my whole adult life has been pursuit of greater meaning. It really is. I mean, it's, I have a simple life. It's all I really wanted. And I have found it. I have found a meaningful life. I'm not waiting. I've already found a meaningful life, and I'm just delighted to see it becoming more meaningful. So out of those seven, we had five that were shamatha and the four measurables. Because I always felt shamatha by itself was never enough. You've got to be cultivating your heart. You know, loving kindness for yourself, compassion for yourself, empathy for yourself. We all know how much low self-esteem is crippling in this modern world. Much more now than you know, in most parts, of the, most parts of the world throughout history. This is really endemic. So four measurables, really, really crucial. So for five retreats, I taught just shamatha and the four measurables. And then the sixth one, couple, at least a couple of you were, that, were there for that one. Then I, okay, now it's time to move on. So we'll do shamatha. We also did the four applications of mindfulness. We spent one month Theravada style, then one month Mahayana style, right? That was good. That was my favorite one thus far, because we're really going for depth, really going for depth, uh, really setting out on what was uniquely the Buddhist teachings, because shamatha is not, and the four measurables are not. So I think it's marvelous that you sign shamatha and the four measurables in the Hindu tradition. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It doesn't make it any less precious because we're sharing it, right? And, this, and the Christians have shamatha, and the Sufis have shamatha, and so forth. And they also, in one way or another, they all have the four measurables. Find me a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim that, that thinks empathetic joy is a bad thing. You know, 
So these are universal virtues, right? So, but then when we got to something uniquely Buddhist, and I'm thinking, okay, well now we're, we're doing something really right to the core. That which liberates, because as it said everywhere in Buddhism, that which liberates is not shamatha. And it's not the four immeasurables. That which liberates is insight. The truth shall make you free. I mean, that's kind of a universal message. It gets around a lot, right? uh, maybe because it's true. So that was really very joyful for me. I felt when we did that one, that sixth one, that was the most meaningful. Because the, I, think I, I think I sprinkled in a bit of the four measurables too, just for good measure. Yeah, You were there too, yeah? Oh, yeah. So we had a bit, a bit of four measurables. It wasn't just all austere and macho, macho, macho the whole way. And then last year, I have to say, it was just sheer delight for me. I just felt slam dunk. That was the best one we've ever had. Because the seven-point mind training. Oh, man. It's a tisha. I could bow for the right. I could do prostration for the rest of my life to a tisha. I'm not kidding. Down boy. Down boy. But I'm not kidding. It was really a wonderful retreat. But I saw this one coming. I know the material I translated. I've been meditating on it for a while, 20 years. I thought this one, I'll be teaching things in this one I've never taught in any eight-week retreat, and actually some of the material I've never taught in any retreat. So this time, more than any, actually, unlike any other retreat, I pounded the drum. I've never done this before. I pounded the drum before the retreat started. I contacted all the, the Dharma centers in Spain and Brazil and all over the place. And I sent out the flyer that Sangye Wangmo prepared, you know, the flyer about this retreat, and here's how you can, the, the, that is, the podcast. I sent it all over the place. Really, just boom, 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 boom. This is going to be a really cool retreat, you know. So if you'd like to listen, it's free, it's free. You know? So I really, I've never done that before. I'm not sure I'll ever do it again, but I was just so thrilled. I, I hope you are, it's obvious. It's not like me, me, me. It's like that, that, that. That is terrific material. And if I can just get out of the way and let Padmasambhava do the teaching, this is going to be a fantastic retreat. That was my sense. So that's why I really left the word. So I think there are probably quite a few people listening in. Uh, now, when we're in Dzogchen, oh, and I should mention, all the, the first five, and then the sixth one, with Shamatha and Vipassana, and the seventh one, everything, Bodhicitta, ultimate Bodhicitta, Shamatha, the whole shebang, and then this one, uh, I never taught them as Shamatha retreats. Certainly not this one. That should have been obvious. I never taught them as shamatha retreats. I never lead shamatha retreats. In the sense of, I'm teaching this so you can simply achieve shamatha. Why would I do that? I mean, literally, why would I do that? That's the first thing Gautama achieved when he left home. That's the first thing he did. He was really smart. He didn't go off and just fast or try breathing exercises. He went off to the best show in town. The best thing offered. And he found the two of the best that achieve extremely high, way, way beyond galaxies beyond shamatha, beyond the form realm into the formless realm. That's the first thing he did. And he did it really quickly. And he saw it was a dead end. And then this secures of austerity. So why on earth? I'm not really stupid. You know? Why on earth would I lead shamatha retreats when that was the dead end? If it's shamatha for the sake of shamatha. You know, really. Actually, I wouldn't teach at all. I'd rather go to my hut because I actually know how to meditate. I can tell you the reason I've been teaching shamatha. Because all along, I'm only one thing for years now, years and years. I'm a margavadan. I'm not a teravadan. I'm a margavadan. I'm one who's here to pound the drum of the path. The path. That's my passion. The path. Not shamatha. 
shamatha is... Do I need to say again? You can achieve shamatha and you've not moved one hair's breadth on the path to enlightenment? You can achieve all the four immeasurables and you've not moved one hair's breadth on the path to enlightenment? Yeah? So the path, you need shamatha, but gul dingy, do you need more? You need vipassana. But now the path that, since I'm not a Theravadan, I respect so many Theravadans, but I think that's obvious by now. I, shouldn't, I don't need to defend myself, right? But I'm not a Theravadan. I'm not aspiring for my own individual liberation. I respect those who do. I think it's much better than just wandering around in samsara. But that's not what I'm teaching. Never envision myself as a Theravada teacher. I draw from the Pali Canon because it's the words of the Buddha, and there's so much wisdom in the Theravada tradition. I draw from it also. But no, all along I've just been teaching the path because you can't get to the path except by way of shamatha. But of course, you get, don't get to the path with only shamatha. But now the path that I'm teaching is not the Shravakayana, it's the Bodhisattvayana, it's the Mahayana, because that's where almost all my teaching has come from, and that's the path that I followed, that's the path I chose, that's where my passion is, the Mahayana path. Well, pardon me if this is repetitive, but that's the breaks, you know. Uh, there are two things that are arch enemies that will absolutely prevent you forever. I'm not exaggerating anything here. That will prevent you forever from any, forever, ever, ever proceeding along the Mahayana path. There are two things. Right? And that is self, self-centeredness and self-grasping. And they're different. Self-centeredness, just in case somebody here, or maybe podcast, I might tell you something you haven't heard. Self-centeredness, sometimes called self-cherishing, but that's a bit misleading. Even though it's literal, it's not very, it's a little bit misleading. Self-centeredness is the sense that my well-being is more important than that of others. If I don't like something, it should stop. I don't care what other people think. If I don't like it, it should stop. Period. Because me, you know, me. My well-being is more important. And then, oh, there's my family. My family is more important than other families. And then my state is more important than other states. My country is more important than other countries. And my planet is more important than other planets, and so forth. Uh, that is that which is diametrically opposed to bodhicitta. That's the head-on collision absolutely diametrically opposed. And insofar as our, li- our minds are still dominated by self-centeredness, then there's no hope. You can practice this for a thousand years. You'll never get anywhere. You never, never enter the path, let alone proceed along it. Right? So I heard a very moving story from John, who is now who is back, about a lama who... Uh, John, where's John? There's John? Uh, John, I'd like you to keep the, the name of the lama anonymous, please. It's my request, but you told me and I will describe him, and you tell me if my description is in any way wrong, okay? But John told me a story that I found very interesting, very, actually quite inspiring. Um, b- before I go there, don't go away. Uh, just a few days ago, Gyaturambachi sent out a flyer to his whole Sangha. He's been teaching for 40 years in the West, 42 years in the West. And he sent out a, a, a flyer, a message from him personally to all of his students. But it was especially directed to his principal city center called Organ Dorjidin in the San Francisco Bay Area. Very dynamic place. A lot of teachers, uh, oh, incredible teachers. Yang Tan Rinpoche, I don't know how many other incredible teachers. Have got, and they've given the most incredible teachings and empowerment. You wouldn't believe the, I mean, really, it's just absolutely, from my mind, it's astonishing. The lamas he, he's been able to invite who accepted his invitation. You know, Kempo Sur Tadige is this lama that has two million Chinese disciples. He's making a real blitz tour through the United States. And um, Gautam Rinpoche invited him. And he said, oh, my, 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 
my schedule, it came quite late, my schedule was so full, but oh, well, for you, yeah, for you, yes, I will. And he made a special time for him. So Gajardhan Bhutti seems to have some influence there uh, because he's really had the finest lamas. You know? uh, and so, and, and at this center, this city center, with 8 million people, I think, more or less, in the San Francisco Bay Area, so a lot of people come. But he sent out a message to his, his old disciples, and specifically to the center. And, but as I read it, it was very touching, incredibly sweet, and frankly, and I say this with the utmost reverence, incredibly repetitive. <laughs> Sorry, he said this many times. And he said, he said, you know, he's 90 years old, and he doesn't go out and teach anymore. And he said, a lot of you are praying for my long life. Well... If you want me to have a long life, this is what I ask of you. And that is, be harmonious with each other. Stop with the me, me, me business. My way. How Rinpoche said is it. My way. My way business. Stop it. Please stop it. It creates disharmony in the Sangha. Please stop it. If you do that, then I have no wish to live long. Please stop that. I'm not saying you're doing it, but please don't do it. Please don't do it. And he went on and on about harmony in the Sangha, harmony in the Sangha, and stop the business my way, my way. I'm in charge. I'm, I, 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 I. In other words, self-centeredness. I found it very moving. It was utterly, and there was nothing new there. If I you said, what new information did you get, Alan? None. But it's my Lama. And he's speaking from his heart. And it was moving. Very gentle. He's a gentle Lama. So then John told me of a, uh, in one of our meetings, and this has nothing about John, otherwise I would not invade your privacy, you know that. But John told me of another lama who's, listen carefully, John, see if I'm exaggerating or anything. This is one of the most eminent lamas in the, Dzog, in the Dzogchen tradition, the Nyingma tradition. Uh, there are tukus and tukus, there are high tukus, medium tukus, low tukus, kind of. I mean, really, they actually are. And this is one of the high tukus. His name, if you knew his name, it's, it's a high tuku. And he's quite senior. He has many students in Asia, but also many students in the West, uh, highly regarded by his peers. And he's also known to have quite, on occasion, quite wrathful demeanor. Some lamas do. He's one of them. So you need, but, every, but anybody who knows his name, you know, oh yeah, he's one of the wrathful ones, right? Is that all correct? Didn't exaggerate anything, did I? Okay, but we're not, I'm not going to say his name. But everything I said was true, because that's all I wanted to do, is say the truth. So John, if John can have the microphone, if you can tell me the story, I, I found it just very... Moving, provocative, and inspiring. So you can tell me the story of this Lama's teachings on self-centeredness. Well, uh, my memory was it's, it was in the midst of some, some other teachings. Actually, the teachings were on Madhyamaka at the time. Mm -hmm. but he started... Is, is the microphone on? Uh, I, I, guess, my, I guess it is. It is. I guess it is, yeah. Okay, it's closer. Yeah. But um, he started uh, speaking directly to his students. It was... Uh, it was it wasn't totally public. It was mostly his students. Mm -hmm. And he just started saying, you will not get enlightened unless you do Tonglen. And he said that over and over again until he was yelling. I'm not going to imitate him. Yeah, he was yelling not. at them. And then he said, it's not me, 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 me. So that's basically the teaching. But he said it over and over and over again, a louder, louder voice, yeah? Yes, louder and louder voice. So he started off, you will not get enlightened with, unless you do Tong Lin. He said it about 
five or six times until he was yelling. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. I find that quite inspiring. Right? That he was hammering like a, like a hammer on a nail. Hammering and hammering and hammering. Now, he's known as a bit ferocious. Okay. So, now, I think you all have a sense that I've been honest with you because I don't think I've given any reason to believe otherwise, so I'd like it to be reciprocated. I have a question for you. And you'll raise hands so nobody listening to podcasts will know what hands goes up. Um, now you've heard John's story. He was there. Um, how many of you think it would be appropriate when the Lama had finished to call him aside and say, Lama, uh, you repeated yourself? I mean, really? And it was looking like you were losing control there. Because you got louder and louder and louder. We heard you the first time. We heard... But when you went on and you were shouting at us, it looked like you were losing control. Uh, and so how many, like a show of hands, how many of you think it would be appropriate after the Lama had given this talk to call him aside and tell him, um, you said it so many times and it was also the way you said it really kind of pissed us off. It really upset us. It agitated our minds and we find it really unskillful and we'd like you to stop. Okay. So please show of hands how many people that think that would be, that would be the thing to do. I, I want total honesty here, and no one will say your name, but hands high in the sky. One person, okay? Only one? Only one? Three. Two, three people. Three people, huh, only. Okay. How many think it would be helpful not to confront him directly, but after he'd left the room, then speak behind his back? And then say the same things. That your teaching were really, his, his teachings, you know, when he's not there, really inappropriate. And then cluster around and maybe even make a division in the Sangha. Uh, that that would be more suitable, more constructive, really helpful. How many think that would be the way to go? One person, okay? Behind the back. Better than to the Lama so you can actually hear what the Lama's acting, hear what you're saying. One person. Oh, that's interesting. Actually, that's quite surprising. But there it is, okay? The self-centeredness. The first time I translated for His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, in 1979, I was scared. I was really, really scared. Because we had 5,000 people. 5,000 people. Many of them were Tibetans. So Gyarambachi was there. Tibetans who were totally bilingual. I was terrified. You know? I prepared and prepared as much as I could, but he was my Lama already, but translating for him in his first teachings in the Western Hemisphere, with all these Tibetans there, any mistake, I know they're going to nail it immediately, right? But I did. I did my best. But one thing I remember so vividly is, I remember it was a big tent, and I was sitting right next to him, of course, and there, were, there was an aisle down the center, and then like 500 people on both sides. And he said, imagine you're on one side of the aisle, and there are 500 people on the other side of the aisle. Which is more important, you or the 500 people over there? Which is more important? Oh boy, I remember that. Because it's answer, the question answers itself. Right. So if we have, let's say, I think probably a reasonable estimate, maybe it's conservative, is maybe for every person here, there's maybe 40 times as many people listening by podcast. Maybe 40 times. And many listening for the first time, because as I said, I really sent out the word this time. Uh, so I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Uh, what's more important? 
40 people or 40 times 40 people. That's self-centeredness. I don't want to hear it, so you should stop saying it. And I don't care about the other 1,599 because I don't want to hear it. Okay, that's fine. Then there's self-centeredness, self-grasping. Self-grasping is different. It's not the same. It's hard. Self-centeredness is not that difficult, <laughs> not that difficult to observe. <coughs> the reification of self. That is. It's very hard. And I've had conversations with people this past week, just find, uh, and, uh, you know, describing their experiences in meditation. It's elusive. It's really hard. Trying to find this mind, you know, to simply observe the mind, settling the mind. That's not difficult. I mean, it's difficult, but not very. Observing thoughts, images, whatever. Yeah, I've done that, been there, done that, so let's do it more. But this other one, this searching for the mind, you know what you're trying to do. You're not trying to, you're not trying to come to the conclusion the mind doesn't exist, but you are trying to see whether the mind exists inherently. And for that to occur, the, your sense of the mind in existing, you're grasping onto the mind existing inherently, has to come out and show itself. If it doesn't, it's hard to find. It's really, really hard to find. And that goes same thing for self-grasping, grasping onto yourself. It's really hard. Really hard. I had a number of very fruitful conversations, meaningful conversations, one-on-one. How difficult that is. And I was speaking with one of you not long ago, in the last couple of days. We're talking about this. And I said, well, you know, emotions, for example, whenever, whenever there's an afflictive emotion, emotion that is bound up with mental afflictions, uh, whenever that happens, you can all be, always be sure that reification is taking place. Reification is the rat, those are the fleas. Those are the fleas, that's the bubonic plague. But whenever there's mental afflictions in the mind, then you can, now, now's your chance. If you're sitting there very peacefully, well, the reification may be so subtle, you can't even pick it up. It's so hard. It's really difficult. So I spoke to this person and said, well, you know, Emotions, not, it's not only true that emotions simply happen to us, but we can generate emotions. You can sit there and you can generate emotion if you like. You know, you know how to do it. And the person said, and I totally sympathize, it's hard, though, just to be sitting quietly in your room and generate an emotion or generate a mental affliction. Say, I, I want to watch. I'm in my, in my laboratory right now, and I want to get one of those mental afflictions come up so I can observe the mind, observe my reification of the mind and really make some progress in Vipassana. But he said, I find it really difficult to just sit there and generate a mental affliction or generate an emotion. It's delusive. I said, well, okay, and, that, and I, I totally get it. It's not easy. And I said, well, in between sessions then, in between you're not formally in meditation, then keep your eyes wide open. And when a mental affliction comes up, that's your chance. That's your chance. Because now the mind is in an afflicted state. And now you have a chance of seeing how you reify your own mind and probably reify yourself too. Right? That's your chance. So, I think I've successfully aroused mental afflictions in the minds of some people. When? Just because I'm uncontrollably ferocious or wrathful or bitter? No. In fact, I'm not bitter at all. That I can tell you. I could give you a summary of my life story, but it is just an ongoing source of joy for me. Loving parents for 20 years, uh, and then loving lamas for 14 years as a monk and as a layperson, coming back to Switzerland, translating for so many lamas, all free, 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 and then retreat under his holiness guidance and other lamas. Iyengar for my teacher, yoga teacher. Ananda Maitreya for my Theravada teacher. Coming back 
and getting a free scholarship, all expenses paid to Amherst College, the best undergraduate college in the world, in the, in the country, United States, and then retreat. And then six years free. My dad paid for the first year, it was a master's program, and then they gave me a full scholarship. A U.S. A US fellowship, and then Stanford gave me. So it was all free, everything was paid for. And then after that, then four really wonderful years of teaching at UC Santa Barbara, after a year and a half living with Gertrude Rinpoche, they were really wonderful years, I really enjoyed it, teaching undergraduates especially. They loved it, I loved it, it was really wonderful. I didn't get the endowed chair, but they really chose a person who was more suitable for that position. I don't really belong in academia. I kind of thought I did, but it just really doesn't fit. So that turned out really well. And then the Santa Barbara Institute, and ever since then, for the last, what, 12, 13 years, just teaching Dharma, meditating, teaching Dharma, and actually making a living. So if you see something to be bitter about there, you see something I don't see. So no, that wasn't coming across. Grief, yes. Grief, yes. When I see suffering being inflicted unnecessarily and out of delusion, it makes me overwhelmingly sad. And that's what you were saying. And does some anger come up? Yeah, when I see it could, be, it could stop, anger comes up. It's not about me. It was never about me. If you, thought, if you thought that, that was yours. That wasn't mine. So, this person has said, I find it so difficult to get the emotions to come up. If you look at the times when I really aroused quite possibly some strong emotions in you, I think you will find they're pretty much centered around the times of Vipassana. Any guesses why? Because that's when you get to see your mind. So when mental afflictions came up, you got two options. Either look at your mind, or look at and reify the teacher, and then think about the teacher. Those are your two big choices. So that's your choice. You can either use the teachings that were given to observe the mental afflictions that come up, observe your reification of the mind, observe the reification of yourself, and make some real headway in Vipassana, or you can say, no thank you, focus on the teacher, reify the teacher, and then draw your judgments, and then talk. That's your choice. But if you are not able to identify the way that you reify, grasp onto the true existence of your own mind, and your own identity, there's no reason to practice Dzogchen. And finally, a really tough truth. But gosh, if, there were, if, if I saw any lama or any text that I'd ever encountered that said, no, 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 there are exceptions. Um, if you're practicing Dzogchen, you are now deep, deep, deep into Vajrayana territory. You can't pretend that it's not. It, it is. And it's the pinnacle of Vajrayana territory. And all of the texts without exception, all the teachers without exception, all the great lamas without exception, they say here, Guru Yoga is indispensable. You can't skip it. I mean, if you skip it, that's fine, but then you're not practicing Dzogchen. You'll look like it, but it's not. You'll make no progress. You have no, you have no chance. You'll make no progress on the path of Dzogchen as long as you're simply still viewing your teacher as an ordinary human being like yourself. And it's kind of obvious. You see, that's not just a doctrine or a tradition or inertia. It's that if you look upon your teacher, the one who is the vessel for the Dzogchen, and you're seeing the teacher as an ordinary person like yourself, an ordinary person, especially an ordinary person like yourself, what chance do you have of realizing the Buddha in the core of your own heart? When you look in the core of your own heart and you see an ordinary sentient being, what chance do you have? So, zero, right? And so, one way or another, 
if you don't bring in Guru Yoga. There's no reason to mess around with Dzogchen or Vajrayana in general because you're wasting your time. So, so you either make use of the teachings or you don't. I'm approaching 65. I'll be 65 next April. That's retirement age. That's when you get your silver watch. You go off and play bridge or something. I don't know how to play bridge. And so therefore, I won't. But I know how to meditate. So fairly soon, I'll make a decision. This is not a threat. I'm just telling you my life. It's, it's fair enough, isn't it? I'm just telling you my life that semi-retreat is a possibility. Well, I'll just sit in my meditation cabin. Beautiful view, wonderful wife, wonderful city. And I'll, when I feel like teaching, I'll talk in the microphone. Then you can listen to podcasts. And you can turn them off anytime you like. You don't need to interrupt. You don't need to be rude. You don't need to worry about being rude. Because nobody will know. Just turn it off. It'll be real easy. Easy for you, easy for me. I'll just sit in my cabin. And when I don't feel like teaching, I won't. When I want to teach, I'll teach on a podcast. It has enormous appeal to me. So maybe I will, maybe I won't. I haven't decided. But I'll decide soon. It'll be fine either way for me. So, that's my response to what on, went on today. Practice dharma, observe your own mind. Practice as well as you can. So we return briefly, but we'll be moving quickly now. I want to find it. Oh, there it is. Because we're not quite out of Vipassana woods yet. So I mentioned E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, very eminent sociobiologist. Distinguished in every way, you know. So, and I'm just talking about metaphysical realism, which if you believe that, then you can't practice Dzogchen. In fact, you can't practice Vajrayana either. You're stuck. Because you, you're reifying the entire physical world, and you, you know, like that. And so here we are. So he says, here's Edward O. Wilson. And if this were anomalous, I would quote him. But he's speaking for many, many. Actually, he's speaking for, well, many, many, many mainstream scientists, the scientific community. Here's what he said. And what he said is reasonable. Listen to it closely. Outside our heads... There is freestanding reality. Only madmen and a scattering of constructivist philosophers doubt its existence. Inside our heads is a reconstruction of reality based on sensory input and the self-assembly of concepts. Input and self-assembly. Rather than an independent entity in the brain constitute the mind. The alignment of outer existence and inner representation has been distorted by the idiosyncrasies of human evolution. That is, natural selection built the brain to survive in the world and only incidentally to understand it at depth, at a depth greater than is needed to survive. In other words, we did not evolve to become scientists. We evolved to eat and procreate and try not to die too soon, but not to figure out general relativity theory. That somehow just crept in. And so, but there it is. So there's a, an asymmetry here between the pursuit of truth and our biological heritage. Sociobiology is a very, very good one. And so he says here, and this is the end of the quote, the proper task of scientists is to diagnose and correct the misalignment. So basically we're, we're animals, and we just have animal instincts, but the scientists will help us overcome that 
so we can actually come to know reality as it is. I think that's very generous. But now he said that what we're trying to understand is this freestanding reality that exists independently out there, objectively, inherently real, of course. And he said, no objective yardstick exists on which to mark these, exist these degrees of acceptance. And that is, you have your theory, and then you have a freestanding reality. How do you compare? How do you see how close you're getting? Your representation, scientific theory, and so forth, and then the freestanding reality. He says, there's no objective yardstick on which to mark the degrees of acceptance. And how are you getting closer and closer? Well, there's no, there's no way to calibrate that. There's no yardstick. Okay? I don't think I'm overinterpreting that. That's what he says, right? There is, and he, but he clarifies, there is, no body, there is no body of external objective truth by which it can be calibrated. In other words, you can't say, okay, we got objective truth here, and here's our theory, and now we, can we have some kind of a Rosetta Stone to translate one over the other. There isn't one. In other words, we actually don't know how to compare our theories with the freestanding reality. We have no yardstick and no calibration device. But that's what science is for. If you see a problem there, you might want to linger. He continues, criteria of objective truth might be attainable through empirical investigation. The key lies in clarifying the still poorly understood operations composing the mind and in improvising the piecemeal approach science has taken to its material properties. So if there's a way forward, it's by understanding the mind, but of course the mind as in terms of its material properties. That's very standard. If the guidelines of scientific research are refined and followed, and I quote, we will in time close in on objective truth. While this happens, ignorance-based ignorance metaphysics will back away step by step like a vampire before the lifted cross. I just read it. Please don't shoot the messenger. If you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, then that's your business. But that's what he said. National Academy of Science, awards, 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 awards. Book was a bestseller. New York Times list, etc., etc., etc. So I just quoted, so please don't shoot the messenger. What is common among people who promote this, many of them, like Richard Dawkins and, other words, uh, and, other, and others who are biologists, what is common is that in the whole course of training as a biologist, uh, undergraduate, graduate, postdoctoral, you actually never need to take a single course in 20th century physics. It's not considered relevant. Maybe here and there, but by and large, you don't need to. You take basic Newtonian mechanics, basic electromagnetism, chemistry, and so forth. But quantum mechanics, if you're a neurobiologist, don't think so. Relativity theory. They would say, give me a break, what do you need relativity theory? That's the speed of light and warping and woofing of space-time. What does that have to do with the brain? In other words, they kind of basically skip 20th century. And if you don't get 20th century physics, then you are living in 19th century physics. Uh, but gosh, you know, maybe I think 20th century physics had some interesting things to say. And one of the great pioneers of that was Werner Heisenberg. And so here's what he says as one of the chief architects of quantum mechanics. I've quoted this many times, but bear with me if you will. What we observe is not nature in itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. 
in other words, what you always get, without exception, is nature relative to your system of measurement, your mode of observation, but you never get to leap the fence and see what it was like independent of and prior to your measurement. In other words, it's always rising to the question you posed, the measurements you're making, the observations you're making with the kind of instruments you're using. It's always rising relative, relative, relative. But what's really happening? He said, well, we never know. We never know. Because what we're observing is always nature relative to. Albert Einstein picks up on that. Although he was not very keen on quantum mechanics, had deep, deep reservations about it. But Albert Einstein, this direct quote, he said, on principle it is quite wrong to try founding a theory on observable magnitudes alone. That is just measurements. In reality, the very opposite happens. That is, you're not developing a theory based upon just one observation after another. In reality, the very opposite happens, he says. It is the theory which decides, decides what we can observe. Right? It's not only instruments you're using, it's the theory that determines what you can observe. Because your questions are always posed in the context of a theory. So that was Albert Einstein. Well, for the last 400 years since Galileo, the scientific community has been asking physical questions. All of them. A little tiny brief period of failed introspection, and back to behaviorism, and all the questions and all the observations, all the measurements are physical. So I wonder what kind of worldview you would get out of that. Oh, I think I know. I don't want to be too sarcastic here. You're going to get a, a, a materialistic worldview. Because all your questions were materialistic. All your questions were about space, time, matter, energy. So when you envision the universe, it's going to be consisting entirely in responses to your questions. And your questions were all entirely physical. I, I don't think there's any anything controversial. Which means if there's any non anything non-physical in the universe, you won't have a clue. Because you weren't asking those questions. And if there are non-physical influences on the universe, you'll say that they have no cause. Because they're not physical, therefore they have no cause. And that's actually a central theme of quantum mechanics. That things happen for no reason whatsoever, because they can't find a physical cause. So that was one of the real dissonant points in these multiple conversations between His Holiness Dalai Lama and quantum mechanics, people, quantum physicists. A lot of incredibly fruitful, mutually engaging, mutually enlightening conversation. My favorite one, if you can forgive me, was, I remember it so clearly, because I was there, I was probably translating, because I translated a lot in the early days, uh, but it was 1997, 1998 maybe, and many of you know this story. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to apologize. I'm going to say it again, because maybe one of the, you know, a couple of thousand people listening haven't heard it. Um, His Holiness was describing Majamaka uh, with these brilliant, I mean, they truly are, they're eminent physicists, you know. One of them was Anton Seilinger. He's one of the most famous, most distinguished experimental physicists working in the foundations of quantum mechanics in the world. He may be actually the most eminent. He holds Evan Schrödinger's position at the University of Virginia. He's really hot stuff. He's a superstar in Austria. Anybody who knows Austria, he's like superstar. And so Anton Seilinger, I just found an incredibly refreshing, open-minded, intelligent, radically empirical scientist. I just, I just, just so much enjoyed speaking with him and hearing everything. As soon as he speaks, I was just all, all ears. He listened to His Holiness talking about Madhyamaka and how when you engage in Madhyamaka analysis, looking for the phenomenon as it exists in and of itself, independent of conceptual designation, he said, you don't find it. You find that it isn't there. It's not that you can't find it. You find that it's not there. There's nothing to be found independent of conceptual designation. And at that point, Anson Seilinger's his eyebrows went up and said, how could you know that without knowing quantum mechanics? No, no. Is that the way? I, maybe I screwed up. 
No, no, it went the other way around. Went the other way around. And I is getting, my mind is getting so feeble. It was the other, it, it was the other way around, the other way around, yeah. So his holiness, his holiness heard, thank you. Yeah, because I see the punchline was already shot. Okay, yeah, I can't even tell an old story. My brain is definitely on the deterioration mode, much faster than Rosa's. I'm way ahead of her. Yeah. <laughs> that was the other way around. That his whole, that Anton, he had two and a half hours in the morning just for him to present. It was marvelous. Nobody's rushed. In most of these conferences, you speak for 20 minutes. And next, next, next. Like it's like, a, you know, like an assembly line. Here in the Mind of Life, these well-thought-out Mind of Life meetings conceived by Francisco Varela, get two and a half hours to talk to his holiness. So it was Anton Seininger talking about when you're looking for these elementary particles and you're trying to understand their own nature independent of any system of measurement, he said you cannot find them. You cannot find them. They're unfindable. They are not there. It doesn't make any sense to speak of them. And then as Holiness said, it's amazing that you came to that conclusion without knowing Madhyamaka. Right. And then Anton said, what's Madhyamaka? Because he just simply came with an open mind. And then his Holiness described Madhyamaka. And then Anton said to his Holiness, how could you possibly know that without knowing quantum mechanics? So there was some real, very meaningful self mutual illumination there. But the one point for which there was never agreement, we don't have to agree. Nobody got angry. We just say, well, here we can't agree. And then the quantum mechanics, they say, there are events that take place that have no causation whatsoever. They just happen, period. No causation. And then we have to say, well, okay, from the Buddhist, we, we have to disagree. Um, that's not compatible with Buddhist view. Not Madhyamaka, not, not any school of Buddhism. So that was the difference. But then when we, uh, when Anton heard that from his holiness, this Madhyamaka, oh, so this was just one of my happiest memories, so I hope you don't mind if I just take you down memory lane. But uh, Anton turns to his holiness, because we're all talking, you know, talking, 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 really good talk, but it's all talk. And Anton said, your holiness, what I'd love to do is bring you to my laboratory in Innsbruck. We're doing the experiments there. Because he's an empiricist. He's an experimentalist, not a theoretician. I'd love to take, bring you to my lab. And I'd love to show you the experiments by which we come to these conclusions. I'll show you one after another, all the way to quantum teleportation. He did that for the first time. There may be a Nobel waiting for him. Why not? It was the first time ever done. I won't explain it. But we have, and I'll show you. I'll show you the evidence. Ehi passi. Ehi passi. Come and see. Will you come and see in my lab? And if you've ever tried to invite his holiness or anything, it goes to his secretary, and they ruminate, and they ruminate, and they ruminate, and maybe two years from now, maybe three years from now, you might get a slot, because he's in high demand. Well, his holiness directed the question directly to his holiness, Anton Seininger, directed the question directly to his holiness. He said, I'd like to invite you, would you come? And his holiness turned to his, personal, his secretary right there, he's always in the room, and he said, make it so. <laughs> Just make it so. And we were there the next year. It was fantastic. So much fun. And deep, not trivial. Nothing trivial about it at all. So now you have a little flavor of Anton Seininger. Yeah? So now let's see what Anton Seininger says. Because that statement by Werner Heisberg does actually shoot a big cannonball into a very fragile structure of, of Edward O. Wilson that says that there's a freestanding reality out there, and science is replicating it, except for, by the way, we have no calibration measure. But the scientists will do it no matter what. Don't worry, we just have to figure out the mind. And how we're doing that is by studying the brain. Um, 
that looks like fragile to me. That looks like if you really like to blow up something, that's very blow upable. Well, they don't need a Buddhist scholar or contemplative to blow it up. This is the beauty of science. They tend to blow things up themselves. So here's Anton Seiling. One may be tempted to assume that whenever we ask questions of nature, there is reality existing independently of what can be said about it. We will now claim that such a position is void of any meaning. In other words, it's not even false. It has no meaning at all. That's his take as an empirical, as a, an experimental quantum physicist, is at the cutting edge of using quantum mechanics to try, try to understand what's going on, what's the nature of the universe. That that claim that Edward O. Wilson made is just has no meaning at all. So it doesn't rise to the level of being incorrect. It just, it's like just making noise. That's what he said. It's void of any meaning, which means like blah, blah, blah. You know? So you don't refute blah, blah, blah. You just say, that had no meaning, what you just said. This implies, directly again from Seininger, this implies that the distinction between information, that is knowledge, and reality is devoid of any meaning. Wow. In other words, the objective world and our knowledge of it. The notion that you can speak of them as being radically separate separate from each other. The separation of ontology from epistemology is now devoid of any meaning. Because every time you speak of reality, you're always speaking by way of a way of knowing. And every time you speak of a way of knowing, you're knowing something. So it's, it's a package deal. You can't just take a hatchet, whack them in two, and say, there's reality out there, and we're trying to figure it out way over here, and we hope that our way of figuring it out is matching onto it. So no, this is a system package. It's a system deal. They come together that the role of inquiry is always entwined with what you know. I think it's very profound. In quantum physics, he continues, in, uh, in quantum physics, the, the notion of the total information of the system emerges as a primary concept, independent of the particular set of complementary experimental procedures the observer might choose, and a property becomes a secondary concept a specific representation of the information of the system that is created spontaneously in the measurement itself. That's a difficult sentence, but I think I can simplify it. And that is, in classical physics, you assume that what is primary is particles, fields, space, and time. That's what's really out there, and then we get information about them. But what is fundamental, ontologically, the foundation of all of reality, space, time, matter, energy, space, time, particles, fields, waves, that's what's absolutely out there and real. And he's saying, well, no, you have to turn that on its head. Because everything we know is information. Information, by the way, is not physical. And on the basis of information, we formulate these concepts of space-time, matter, matter to energy, particles and fields, and so forth. But information is primary. And the properties, an electron, its charge, its mass, its momentum, its spin, and so on, those are all secondary. So if you really are taking that in, you see, this was, in fact, a revolution. Because he's speaking for many people there. That wasn't just one guy's idea. This is Niels Bohr, it's, it's Niels Bohr, it's Heisenberg, it's Paul Dirac, and so on. Uh, it kind of changes everything. Information, information not physical. This is semantic information, information that has a referent. That's primary. And the physical constituents of the universe, those are derivative, secondary. 
So now, really, fundamentally, the nature of the universe appears differently. Now, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to write, read from one of my own books, but it's just, it's not because it's one of my own books, it's because I don't know a, a better way to say it. This was one of the most thrilling uh, theories that I've encountered anywhere. Uh, and there's a lot of new age stuff. When it gets to quantum mechanics, it's all over the place. Oh, new age this, new age that, flaky this, flaky that. But, in the, but, and, but also, there's just no consensus. For the last 90 years, since Heisenberg was doing his work, almost exactly 90 years ago, there is just no consensus. What is the role of the observer? What's the measurement problem? What constitutes a measurement? Do you need to have consciousness? Is it a probability wave that collapses? Or are there multiple worlds? Or There are multiple theories that are all incompatible with each other. They're all highly intelligent. But a factual statement is there is no consensus at all. They just, there is no consensus on what does this mean about the nature of reality. Uh, and it's not clear. I, I just asked an outstanding physicist just a few days ago. We had a, oh, about an hour and a half long Skype call. And I said, am I correct in my conclusion that since this whole measurement problem came up 90 years ago, there's been no progress? Because that's my impression. He said, yeah, that's right. There's been no progress. So what this means is, okay, then it's unresolved that we can't assume there's already a right answer. And now what do you Buddhists have to say? It's they don't have a right answer. And they're looking with a high degree of intelligence. But in 90 years, they're not making any progress. What's the role of the observer? What's the nature of measurement? What does it mean when a probability function collapses and you get a reality, but before it's only a potentiality? What does that mean? Is that a real description or is it poetry? Is it metaphorical? Is it literal? What does it mean? Well, until two physicists got together, it was widely assumed that a quantum system is something you need to isolate. You create one. This is what Anton Seinring was doing in his, his lab in Innsbruck, and then he was, he was upgraded to a position at the University of Vienna. With a lot of technology, a lot of it's not easy to do, you create a quantum environment that is protected from the warm, big, messy world that we live in. And then within that quantum system, then you make measurements. And before you make the measurements, it's a, it's a probability function. It's just a field of potential. But it can be mathematically calculated with great precision with the shooting a wave occasion. Okay? So, so then, if that's the case, and if the quantum effects just vanish as soon as they come in contact with the warm, big, mushy, complex, clunky world of our world by the process called decoherence, then you can say, well, then the implications of quantum mechanics are very limited because it's just in this very artificially created quantum system that you get all these spooky things coming up. But outside of that, well, frankly, it, unless you're traveling near the speed of light, it's pretty much Newton was right. You know, good old Newtonian mechanics, James Clerk Maxwell, electromagnetic field, electromagnetic field equations, but then two physicists did what physicists and other scientists, the brilliant ones, often do. They turned it on its head. And instead of seeing the quantum system as something very local that you need to protect from the great big macro environment, which is following the laws of, laws of classical physics, these two people, and I'll tell their names in just a moment, they turned it all the heads and said, what, what, but what about if the entire universe is a quantum system? In other words, there's no protecting it, the whole system. So they did the math. Their names were Bryce DeWitt, who died in 2004, and Wheeler, John, John Archibald Wheeler, and he died also just a couple of years ago. And, but John Archibald Wheeler, in the latter part of the 20th century, uh, he was at the Institute for Advanced Studies. Richard Feynman was at Caltech. These, um, in terms of American theoretical physics, they're both theoretical physicists, these were the two big pillars. If you were really, really smart and you wanted to study theoretical physics, well, if you could get into Caltech and study with Richard Feynman, 
or get into the Institute for Advanced Study and be able to have some guidance by John Wheeler, well, then you will just kiss your lucky stars because you've just now encountered the best, the best of the best in the United States. There are some very, very good ones in Europe as well, but the United States, these two guys were tops. And so I say this just to point out what I'm about to say is not flaky, new age, wishy-washy, something you know, ridiculous. Because I don't go to those people. I'm wasting my time. I'm going to die soon, so I want to look at the really sharp, the sharpest of the sharp. And so these two, Bryce DeWitt and John Wheeler, apply the principles of quantum mechanics to the universe as a whole, creating the field of quantum cosmology. And did this with mathematics. They took the Schrodinger wave equation and applied it to the entire universe. According to the mathematical description of the cosmos, the observer participant, the observer participant, the observer participant, that's their word, the observer participant plays a fundamental role in the very creation and evolution of the universe. The observer participant. Without an observer participant, time is said to be frozen implying that the universe does not change or evolve without the intervening role of the observer. Now, what the, inver the observer does is enter into dualistic grasping and say, there's the universe over here and I'm over here. Time is said to be frozen until the observer says, now. As soon as the observer says, now, then relative to that now, then you have a past and a future. But if the observer participant doesn't say now, then there's no past or future. It's frozen time. And the universe is static. It does not move, it does not change, it does not evolve without the role of the observer participant. So if that was important for a little lab in Innsbruck, now it's for the whole universe. Right? Hmm. It gets pretty interesting, pretty interesting. I mean, I love this. So time is said to be frozen, implying that the universe does not change or evolve without the intervening role of the observer. The past, including the 13.7 billion years since the Big Bang, does not exist independently of the observer. And the same is true of the present and the future. The past, present, and future all exist relative to the observer. The, observe, the universe evolves only when an observer participant divides it into two parts: a subjective observer and the rest of the objective, a subjective observer and the rest of the objective universe. And the mathematical description of the rest of the objective universe depends on time measured as measured by the observer. In short, the evolution of the universe and everything in it, including life itself, is possible only relative to an observer participant. When I read that, I felt like I was going to explode. Like, this sounds like Madhyamaka and Dzogchen. And how could they possibly know that when they knew nothing of Buddhism at all and had no interest? Or am I fooling myself? Maybe this is a superficial resemblance, but I'll continue. This implies that time itself has no independent reality. Wheeler wrote in this regard, and I quote, it is wrong to think of that past, any past, as already existing in detail. The past is theory. The past has no existence except as it is recorded in the present. By deciding what questions our quantum registering equipment shall put in the present, we have an undeniable choice in what we have, to say, have the right to say about the past. In other words, he's saying there is no objectively existent past to the universe, to your life, or anything else. The past is always rising relative to the measurement you're making in the present. That just like was like an atomic bomb going off in my mind. Like, if that's true, wow, amazing.
Well, I'll quote one more person. I think we won't really have to bite into our dinner time. Stephen Hawking. I think I don't need to defend him, right? Everybody knows Stephen Hawking. He holds Isaac Newton's chair. He may be emeritus by now, but everybody knows Stephen Hawking. Of the University of Cambridge, and then Thomas Hertog of the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN. On the continent, it doesn't get any better than CERN. They're running the Large Hadron Supercollider. So they're top-notch. These two, Stephen Hawking and his colleague Thomas Hertog, have proposed that there is no objectively, absolutely objective history of the universe as it exists independently of all systems of measurement and conceptual modes of inquiry. While current views on the origin of the universe assume that one can take a bottom-up approach, working forward from the beginning. So bottom-up means you make some calculations or you draw some conclusions about the Big Bang or the inflationary period afterwards, and then you fast-forward to where we are right now. But you go to the past and then you roll it forward, right? He said many, many people believe that. But Hawking and Hertog have proposed a top-down approach, starting from current observations and working backwards. In other words, everything you know about the past is based upon measurements in the, pre in the present, which, of course, is the only, time, the only place you ever make measurements. Nobody has a time machine and goes back in the time and makes a measurement. It would be nice if you could, but that, ne that never happens. So it's a radically different way of viewing how do we know anything about the past at all. You can imagine you jump backwards and then go forwards, or you can be realistic, radically empirical, and say, hey, we're always in the present moment. Let's make measurements. And then from the measurements taken in the present, then we'll go backwards in time from there. But now, how you work backwards depends entirely on the questions you ask and the methods of inquiry you adopt in the present. Every possible version of a single universe exists simultaneously in a state of quantum superposition. That's the first time I'd read that. Uh, that for the past, until you make a measurement, the past exists in a superposition state. It's now viewing the whole reality as a quantum system. Until you make a measurement, the past, the past, I'm glad you're smiling, you're getting it. The past exists in a superposition state. It's only a field of possibilities. The past, the future, of course. No, but the past. Because all you know, ever know about the past is in the future, and if you haven't made a measurement in the future yet, then the past from your perspective. It sounds kind of like maybe you're in the center of your universe. The past from your perspective doesn't exist, except as a field of possibility. Make a measurement, and then relative to your questions, your system of measurement, then a past arises relative to that system of measurement. But apart from that, it has no objective independent reality at all. And to even speak of such, as Anton Seilinger said, is not false, it's meaningless. So every possible version of a single universe exists simultaneously in a state of quantum superposition. When you choose to make a measurement, choose. That's a big word, isn't it? We've been, running, we've been rolling that one around. When you choose, not whether to have vegetarian or non-vegetarian, but when you choose your universe, when you choose the past of your universe. And that's the universe from your perspective, and you are in the center of it. When you choose your past, universe, not ham sandwich. When you choose to make a measurement, you select from this range of possibilities a subset of histories that share the specific features measured. In other words, the, the past that rises up to meet you will be relative to the measurements you're making. Right? The history of the universe as you conceive of it 
is derived from that set of histories. In other words, you choose your own past. Scientists have been doing it for 400 years, and everybody else too. So I love things that just blow my mind um, and, and resonate deeply intuitively. And I love to unify, because I was trained in physics, not as much as some people here. You have much more knowledge than I do. But I trained in it to the point that I felt what I want to know is the underlying foundations. What does it mean? And I studied it to the point that I saw diminishing returns. That if I studied further, I'd just become a physicist. And I didn't want to become a physicist. I just wanted to know what it meant. So I studied up to and including the Schrodinger wave equation and all the math and all the physics up to that point. I, I understood it and I used it. Uh, and that's when I stopped studying physics. And, I, and of course, that special relativity, you have to cover that. Uh, but this is what I was interested in. And then the rest of it, most of my training, of course, is in Buddhism, in Madhyamaka and then Dzogchen. So I'd have to say we're almost finished. I think I can end pretty much on time. That is there consensus on this point? That now that this eminent physicist, John Wheeler, and then another one, Stephen Hawking, and then Thomas Hertog, another one, and then Bryce DeWitt, now that they have spoken, the lions have roared, is the, 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 the community of physicists, are they lining up and saying, thank you for solving the problems of the universe? And the answer is no. Um, it's a brilliant theory, and it's been very controversial. They've debated it a lot. But now it's one more theory, because there are a lot of other ones that don't accept that at all. Many people are following the Ever Everett multiple world theory, which I won't go into. But then there's no evidence for that, any more than there is for string theory. So that's kind of a little bit wobbly if there's no evidence for something. To believe in it with no evidence, a bit wobbly. But the point is there's no, no agreement on anything. And what I did notice but from John Wheeler and then from Stephen Hawking is both of them would not use the C word, consciousness. Observer participant, observer participant, but they wouldn't use the word consciousness. Stephen Hawking, when asked in a Time Magazine interview, 10 questions of Stephen Hawking, said, Professor Hawking, what is your view of consciousness? What happens to consciousness at death? His response was, well, my understanding is that consciousness is the software, the brain is the hardware, and when you die, you're finished. So now it's become mere epiphenomenon or function of the brain, whereas he was saying that you choose the past of the entire universe. So that's quite... Uh, I find that a dissonance there. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. That's all it is. It's just an opinion. But I don't see how those two statements are even remotely compatible. And so... There's a limitation here. It's the strength of modern academia, uh, opinion are coming, the strength of modern academia, and it's a limitation. And that is hyper-specialization. When I was studying physics, I was studying under my mentor, so I was studying especially light. I was well, I was actually studying the zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. Studied it for two years. Did my, my thesis on that. Did the mathematics for it. I, I read multiple interpretations of it. That was my little tiny niche. I was undergraduate. I didn't make any really new contribution, but I tried to understand it and see what it meant. But this meant that so much of physics I had basically no understanding of, because you have to specialize. You know. And so then I turned out, well, that's actually true for all of physics. This is what Arthur Zions told me, is that you know, we have our specialties. And his is quantum optics, which means he knows only kind of undergraduate level, maybe graduate level, so many other branches of physics. But unfortunately, I think, because of this hyper-specialization, you go through undergraduate and graduate degree, do you ever get a course on consciousness? Well, no, but that's because nobody does. Not 
actually speaking of knowledge, because that's not what they study. Francisco Varela told me, as an eminent neuroscientist, that until pretty much this century, you couldn't even talk about consciousness in neuroscience labs. It was kind of like, just talk, talk about it. We can't deal with that. Talk about it over tea. That's what Francisco told me. So it was kind of left out, left out altogether. The role of the mind and nature was completely left out. And then the physicists, when they come, they, they just are kind of having a head-on collision with a measurement, the observer, observer participant. Time is frozen. The universe is frozen. And it's calling in the observer that they just don't know what to do with that because they have no training. Any more than they have training in agriculture or sewing. It's just not part of their training. So then we shouldn't be hard on them. They never had any training for it. But then if you don't have any training, but the, bill st the stopping point here is the nature of the observer participant, the observer who's making a measurement and without which there really is no measurement, he just thinks bumping into each other, then you've got a problem. But the last point, 602, we'll be wrapping up really within one or two minutes, is that what John Wheeler is saying is, as we heard from Anton Seilinger, from this perspective of quantum mechanics, quantum cosmology, what is baseline, what is fundamental, the ground of being, is not space-time matter energy, which is what most scientists do believe, like Edward O. Wilson. It's information. And John Wheeler is emphatic that information that is being referred to here is semantic information. Semantic information is meaningful information that has a referent. It's about something. So if you've studied physics and you know about kind of a, how do you say, a disembodied information that's related to entropy, it's not that. Information as we use it. I'm conveying some information. That means my words have a referent. They're about something, right? And so he's saying information is fundamental to the universe and everything else is derivative because everything else is what we conceive out of the information that we get from measurements, but what we're measuring is always relative to our measurements. You've heard that before. Well, let's just do a little tiny bit of logic and we'll go to dinner. Information, semantic information. I will say this, now it's my opinion, okay? but see whether it holds water. Maybe it doesn't, then refute me. I won't. I'll be actually happy if you refute me, uh, but I haven't seen how yet. Information. If you have information, it has to be about something. You can't have information that has no referent. You can't have information with null content, otherwise that's no information. right? Information has to have informata, something that it's referring to, that it's informing you about. So you have one, you have to have the other. Information and what the information is referring to, otherwise it's not semantic information. So it's not a word unless the word refers to something. right? So far so good, yeah? But for there to be information, there has to be someone who's informed. Because if no one's informed, then there was no information conveyed. And the only people who are informed are people who are conscious. How can you be, how can you, what, it doesn't make any sense at all to speak of information, to come, come to something that's not conscious at all, and there being understanding of that, and understanding the referent of the information. I don't see how that's possible. So as far as I can tell, which is straight logic, um, if there's information, there has to be someone who's informed. So there should be three things. The one who's informed, the information, the transmission of information, and that which the information is about, the referent of the information. There have to be three. Now, if you take away one, if there's no information, then there's no one who's informed. Because you can't be informed when there's no information. And if you take away that about which the information is, then there's no information and there's no one who's informed. 
But if you take away the one who's informed, then there's no information because no one's getting it. And there's also no informata. There's nothing the information is about if nobody picked it up. So this is classic Madhyamaka. And that is there's the, the agent, the action, and the object of the action. There's the one who's informed, the act of informing, and then there's the object of, that, that you're referring to in the information. But if you take away any one of those three, the other two vanish into thin air. It's a package deal. Take away one, the other two vanish. They don't go anywhere. They're just not there. Take away left, there's no right. Take away up, there's no down. Right? Take away existence, there's no non-existence. It's one of those things. Right? So if John Wheeler is right, if Stephen Hawking is right, and they may not, maybe, may not be, but they don't have any way of testing the theory, that's a problem. Um, then, if information is primary, fundamental to the universe, then someone who's informed is fundamental to the universe, which means consciousness is fundamental to the universe. Because without someone who's informed, there's nothing to be informed about, which means there's no universe. And so it's a package deal, if that's correct. Right? So it's, an, it's a, quite a brilliant theory, but they have no way of testing it, so it hasn't gained a whole lot of attention. But it's published in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, these are top-notch physicists. Um, how would one possibly go about testing such a theory? Shamatha with, with Madhyamaka might work. If you could shift your conceptual designation, which is about information, shift your mindset, shift the information, you might be able to, if you know that there is no informata out there existing by its own inherent nature, you might be able to shift that as well. It's a package deal. If you've got a rug and you pull one side of the rug, the other side of the rug moves too. If it's an integrated system. And if the subject, the object, and the object, the, the process of information, if it's all of a system, if you tweak one, you tweak the other too. You can't help it. Because they don't exist independently of each other. Right? Dzogchen. If you could slip down into pristine awareness and view the whole of reality from that perspective, then you'd be awake within the dream. You'd be viewing this quantum system of the universe from a perspective that's not caught up in the dualities of subject and object. You might be able to run experiments that would actually alter the nature of reality because of your perspective, as you can in a lucid dream. If you're lucid, you can start changing the reality. Because number one, you know there's nothing out there objectively, and number two, you know you can change it just by simply changing the informed person and your expectations, your desires, and so forth. And you change the whole dream including, if you wish, dissolve the whole dream into nothing from your perspective. You don't kill anybody. You just dissolve the whole universe from your perspective. That's what happens when you stop dreaming. From your perspective, that little microcosm of the dream disappears into the substrate. When an aria goes into non-conceptual realization of emptiness and all conceptual designation ceases, the whole universe for the, for the aria dissolves into emptiness. There is no phenomenal world. When the arhat passes away, all conceptual designation, the coarse mind, the subtle mind, dissolves. There is no physical world. There's just the transcendent. Timelessness, beyond time. So maybe that theory has been tested. Maybe it's been tested many times. So wouldn't it be fantastic if that study was done in collaboration with open-minded scientists like Anton Seilinger and others, quite a number of them. I know a number of them. They're open-minded. They know what isn't known. They're not pretending to know what they don't know. They're open. They're inquisitive. They're looking for new ideas because they know they've been stuck for 90 years. That's a long time. That was, an, that was the 20th century, most of it, stuck. 
when so many fields were progressing, they got totally stuck on this one. Physics has progressed, quantum mechanics has progressed, but not on that point. The role of the observer, role of the observer. So, that's that. It suggests, and I'm going to quote something tomorrow. Now it's six, almost 6.10. Uh, you, know, you know me, when I say it's almost finished. I actually am being honest. I actually believe it every time I'm saying it. You know? My brain's definitely getting soggy. But what if you start from Judaism, for example, and you're contemplative, and you just let the bottom drop out? You go into the Kabbalah. You go into contemplative insight. You go into the Ain, the A-Y-I-N, into the Ain, transcendent reality, ultimate reality. And what if it, your description when you come out looks one heck of a lot like Dzogchen and one heck of a lot, a lot like what we just read? I put on the notes for this week an article by Daniel C. Matt. He is the foremost scholar of the Kabbalah. He's really quite brilliant. And he gave a talk that he could have made bad in so many different ways, comparing Kabbalah to modern physics. It was brilliant. I have, that's it. That's all I can say. It was brilliant. You go into Christianity, which is quite different from Judaism. And what happens if you let the bottom drop out? You go to Nicholas of Cusa, John Scotius Eriyurjana, Hildegard von Bingen. And they start talking about their experience, and it looks one heck of a lot like Dzogchen. What happens if you start with Hinduism, with the Vedas, but then you go to the culmination of the Vedas, Vedanta, culmination, the end of the Vedas, and you go into Vedanta, and you let the bottom drop out? And you start talking about the primordial union, the indivisibility of the Atman and Brahman. And it looks one heck of a lot like Dzogchen. And then you go over Taoism. Now, that's very different from Hinduism and Judaism and Christianity. Different from Buddhism, too. But what happened? You let the bottom drop out. And it starts looking a lot like Dzogchen. And then you start with Islam. Boy, that's different. But you go into the Sufi, and then you say, what, what, what are the deepest ones? And it looks like Dzogchen. And I'm not saying Dzogchen like they're all becoming to Tibetan Buddhists. That's just the word I know. They're coming to what they're coming, but if you see resonance there, like, this looks like more than a coincidence. And now the final one, what happens if you start with Galileo and Newton and James Clerk Maxwell? And you start with Max Planck, and you go on to Einstein, and you go on to Heisenberg, and you go on to John Wheeler. A secular approach. And what happens when you start going into the depth, the, the, the cutting edge, the deepest cut of understanding physical reality by the most brilliant physicists living. And they start talking in a way that it looks like they're talking about Dzogchen. Could this mean that whether you start from philosophy, you start from religion, you start from physics, that if you go deep enough, and keep on going deeper, 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 that you're converging on a reality that is not religious or philosophical or scientific? but transcends all of those categories. And that's because it's simply true. And you don't have to be scientific, you don't have to be religious, you don't have to be philosophical. You just have to have a relentless passion for truth and never stop. Never stop short. Keep pursuing with an open mind, without prejudice, with perceptiveness, and a passionate yearning to put into practice, not just come up with brilliant theories, put into practice a theory so you can know through your own experience. What if it turned out to be the case that there is this really primordial convergence on reality as it is?
Wouldn't that be splendid? Wouldn't that be unifying? When you have so much diversity, so much conflict, ideological warfare and so forth and so on, if that could be demonstrated, if that's true, if it's not true, then let's just show it's not true. If it is true, wouldn't it be marvelous if there were scientists involved from different cultures, contemplatives from different cultures, philosophers from different cultures, neuroscientists, psychologists, physicists coming together with a shared passion to know reality as it is, and then joining hands, let us know reality as it is. And let's not assume that any of us have all the answers. Let's be open with respect to everybody who's coming with an open mind, radically empirical, wanting to know reality, and wanting to know it immediately, directly, so we really get benefit from it. That was His Holiness of Vision. That was His Holiness, exactly like that. That was His Holiness Vision. You know, I've tried for two years. Bitterness, no. Frustration, yeah. Yeah, really. Frustration, I tried for two years in India with His Holiness's blessing, and we got nowhere. I've been trying for seven years in Santa Barbara. We'll know maybe within, well, actually, I got some news today that the property would like to acquire, the highest people would like to sell it. That was news. We've been waiting for two years, and finally we got the word. They'd like to sell it. They said, of course. And in fact, they'd like to sell it to us. That was seven years. In Scotland, how long? Two years? Australia, got 60 people, but still no place. So I'm not bitter at all. What I, be, I have nothing to be bitter about, absolutely not. But frustrated, yeah. Because there's so much suffering that's unnecessary, so much delusion that is foolish and obviously delusional. So couldn't we come together here? Open mind, like that. And so far, kudos for the Mexicans. They were the one that started it. They have one going, one contemplative observatory, full. Eight yogis, full time. They started it. I've been going there for 14 years, though. They got it. Brazil is coming soon. They have land. They have the uh, fantastic teacher down there. So, but I'm getting older and older and older. And there's so much suffering that's unnecessary. I get frustrated. And I know that really turns people off. And I understand. And I sympathize. And I'll try to, I'll try to be good. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow.